as I go, as the rain and snow fall from heaven, uh, return back so my so is my word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me void will accomplish the purpose I have set out for it to do that's the Peter James version uh, some mix of translation and memory and trying to figure things out that's the promise of God's word that I hope and trust will be accomplished not just this week but every week uh, as we come here God's God's spirit will use his word for his purpose in our lives uh, Colossians chapter 2 <laughs> Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Praise the Lord. Uh, next week, Lord willing, uh, Tim Valentine, one of the pastors at Randolph Street, will take you through 3 through 5, and then we'll break from the summer. We don't want to go too fast. Uh, Keith will be preaching on Jonah, unless something changed since the last time that we talked four weeks through that wonderful book. I'm both jealous of that because it's such a wonderful a uh, wonderful prophet of God, uh, but thankful for, for those that will bring the word in our absence. Um, Paul continues to talk about a struggle that he had. Colossians chapter 2, he talked about in chapter 1, he talked about a struggle. He had said throughout the different passages in chapter 1, he mentioned the fact that he was a servant of Christ. He was a servant of of Christ's gospel. He's a servant of Christ's church. And as a servant of Christ, of the gospel, of the church, Paul suffered, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And he struggled last week, verse 29, this I toil struggling for that goal of presenting everyone mature in Christ. He suffered and he struggled for the advancement of the gospel. And we need to keep in mind those things that have gone before as we we read this passage. Let me read Colossians chapter 2, verses... uh, I'll read 1 through 5, but again, I'm only going to be covering verses 1 and 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So as a servant of Christ's gospel, the church, Paul suffered, Paul struggled for the advancement of the gospel, but not, not even just generally, but he saw it specifically for believers gathered in churches. Included in Paul's suffering and Paul's struggling certainly was his physical persecution and his imprisonment. And while writing this letter, Paul was chained. He reminds them at the closing, chapter 4, verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. He's under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar. This was not a pleasant experience for him. So he struggled and he suffered in that physical persecution that he, he endured. He also struggled in the faithful preaching and teaching, like what we talked about last week, right? Faithful preaching and the evaluation of those things, Paul labored or struggled to fulfill this part of his ministry. Um, preaching and preparation for preaching uh, is labor. Uh, it, is, it is struggle, uh, a weekly struggle that I 
depending on the week, endure or enjoy. Uh, you know, there's the, the joke that, that preachers work one day a week. Uh, that's, that's not the case. And I seek to labor and struggle on your behalf with the energy that God provides to, to dig into his word, to sit under it, and to be able to present it as clearly, faithfully as I can to you. Paul preached and taught everywhere all the time, everywhere that he went. And this was not only to the churches where he was, but also to the ministry assistants that he trained and sent out along the way. I think that the pattern that Jesus had set with his 12 disciples and three that were closer to him, Paul uh, mirrored as he traveled around, where he had Timothy with him. He had Titus. He had Epaphras. He had Tychicus. He had Onesimus with him. He had a number of these different guys, Silas, Silvanus, probably the same person referenced in another book, that he had these men with him that not only just heard him publicly address other churches, but then while walking other places, while sitting, mending tents, right, uh, that they followed him, they learned from him. And then these ministry assistants, he trained and he sent out along the way as well to multiply the ministry. Paul couldn't, well, now he couldn't go anywhere. He's, in, he's under arrest. But yet the ministry continued to go. The gospel continued to advance. And so Paul struggled and labored in faithful preaching and teaching. There was also the struggle that Paul had in merely communicating with these churches. He said daily, you know, it's after, like the climax after, yeah, I was stoned, yeah, I was shipwrecked, yeah, I, I've starved, I've almost died from cold, and then daily presses on me the weight of caring for the churches. And there was a struggle of communicating with these churches. A quick communication has become so easy and widespread for us. Uh, that if we don't get a text response immediately, we can start to worry if everything's okay, right? I text Leanne and the dots don't start rotating. We're iPhone users. So the, te- the dots are like, well, what? why don't I have a red receipt? What's going on? Did, what, what's happening with their phone? Is everything okay, right? Should we call out the police, FBI? What's going on? And that's just my wife. My kids start driving. I heard that that's just a whole other world. So I got a few years by that, thankfully. But that type of speed of communication is an exceedingly new phenomenon. Right? Some of you, young enough that you're like, what do you mean? Do people haven't always had cell phones in their pockets? No, we haven't. But for almost all of human history, communication over distance has been very slow. So consider this with this book. Epaphras left Colossae to travel to Rome and find Paul. This was a journey of around 1,200 miles over land and sea. According to Google Maps, it would take you 11 days to walk and boat from Colossae to Rome. 11 days. That's roughly the equivalent of walking from here to Houston, Texas. Uh, if you're not great at geography and you're like, where's Houston, Texas? I'm trying to picture a map. Uh, you could walk to the West Virginia State Capitol building down 60 and back 23 times. If that's too much for you to grasp, then it's 4,800 laps around a track, which is a lot of laps. 1,200 miles to find Paul in Rome, 11 days, met with Paul, found Paul. How long did it take him to find Paul? We don't know. Was it easy, right? Just Roman prison directory, where's Paul? 
So he had left Colossae, Epaphras left Colossae, traveled 11 days to find Paul in Rome, found Paul in Rome, discussed the situation that, that at the church in Colossae that needed Paul's input. I mean, did Paul have an immediate response or did he need to process and think and pray? Probably process and think and pray. Then Paul penned the letter that he wanted to send. The team that would carry the letter needed to get ready to travel. That's not an immediate thing. And then they had to then travel another 11 days back to Colossae. Were the boats just waiting for them when they hit the coast? There's like two bodies of water that they had to travel across to get there. So it's just like, it's not like a 23-day turnaround. If it was 23 days, right? More like a month, two months, three months, just for Epaphras to get to Rome and for this letter to make its way back to Colossae. And even with that, even with that month, probably much longer, Paul then still wouldn't have known how they would have received the letter, right? So once the concerns raised to Paul and Paul writes a letter to seek to address it, they have to travel back there. They have to uh, expound on the ministry that he had provided. And then he has to wait to hear a reception back from them. So Paul loved them. Even though he didn't know them personally, he loved them. And so he struggled with this hard, difficult, complicated means of communication, eager to know that they were faithfully walking before Christ. Then with nothing else to do but wait, Paul struggled in one other way. Paul struggled in prayer for them. In chapter 4, verse 12, Paul wrote that Epaphras was always struggling on their behalf in his prayers that... He wrote that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Struggle for maturity, a struggle of prayer for their maturity. Just as Paul was struggling to preach for their maturity and struggling through all the details of writing for their maturity, Epaphras and Paul struggled with him. I mean, there's no, it doesn't say, Paul doesn't say he struggled and I struggled, but there's no doubt that Paul was likewise struggling in prayer for them because he did already admit that he did not cease to pray for them. And it's both funny and sad that we could easily phrase this as, well, all Paul could do for them was pray. They were so far, he's chained to a guard, all he could do was pray. But it's kind of funny that we would say that, and it's sad that we would think that. If only we recognized that the most we can do for someone is pray for them. And that we needed to keep praying for them. And that we need to struggle in prayer for them. I'm looking forward to digging in more on chapter 4. That God would teach me what it means. That God would teach us what it means to not just to pray, but to struggle in prayer for one another. Paul wanted to Colossians to know. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. He wanted them to know the severe nature of this struggle and that it was on their behalf. I'm not just struggling I'm struggling for you and, and for those Laodicea and, and on behalf of all those who have not seen me face to face. Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis, three cities in this Lycus Valley region of, of Turkey, that, uh, three cities that made up one unit. Right? We kind of sometimes have two cities that are twin cities, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. We might have a tri-city type of an area. And these three cities, a few miles apart, made up uh, a unified area, which is why these other cities are specifically mentioned. And so those who have not seen me face-to-face may include the nearby city of Hierapolis, uh, probably also includes just all Christians all around the, the Roman Empire. 
Uh, Paul did not plant this church. Remember, Paul had not met them. They had not met Paul. Uh, Epaphras is the one who had learned from Paul, brought the gospel to them, and planted that church. But as an apostle, Paul struggled and was concerned and, and had authority and had a ministry to every Christian in every church in every city, even if he had not met them and they had not met him, which is a more expansive ministry than, than a typical pastor would have, right? The role of a pastor, role of apostle, those are not equal things, right? Apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers, okay? So it's like, I do not, thankfully, I do not bear the same um, weight of responsibility or authority over really anybody other than this one. That doesn't mean I don't have a concern for our brothers and sisters at Lighthouse or at Randolph Street or at Salt Peter Community or uh, Williamson First Baptist or um, Lakeville Baptist in Salyersville or the New Plant Christ Community in Paintsville, I'm going to say, but I could be wrong about that. Um, not that I don't care about them, right? But pastorally and, and apostolically, there's a difference between those different things. Paul had a, had a bigger concern, but I, I just wonder for myself, do I have... Do I have the same concern for the body that he's given me? That's what this text uh, speaks to me about. That's sort of the nature of Paul's struggle. But what's the goal of Paul's struggle? He doesn't just, he's not just telling them this. I want you to know how bad I have it. I want you to feel sorry for me. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's telling them about a struggle because he has a goal. He was not struggling for struggling's sake. And Paul was not just an anxious person who delighted in worrying about others. Like, oh, thank you for telling me about the believers in Colossae. Now I have another thing to worry about because all I do, I love worrying, right? That's not Paul. Paul had a goal for his struggle. He had a goal for the labor that he expended in praying and in preaching, even when it brought painful sufferings into his life, which it did regularly. Paul's goal for the Colossians and the Laodiceans and every other Christian, Paul's goal was their Christ-like spiritual maturity. It's not hard to know where I got that, right? It's just in verse 28. Talked about it last week. That we may present everyone, everyone that we have an opportunity to minister to, directly or indirectly through my ministry assistance, I want to present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul's goal was their Christ-like spiritual maturity. It was Paul's goal in faithful preaching. It was last week, right? What is, the, what is the evaluation of faithful preaching? And right in the middle, the goal of it is Christ-like spiritual maturity among believers. That goal of presenting everyone mature in Christ was in line with Christ's purpose in reconciling us. Verse 22, reconciled us to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It was also what Paul ceaselessly prayed for them about. Verse 10, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We just take all of these terms, all these ideas, just meld them together into this is what Christ-like spiritual maturity looks like, that we would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him and everything that that looks like based off of those passages, which is why Christ reconciled us, that he may present us before himself and before his Father as holy, blameless, and above reproach. Paul says, I'm just trying to line up with that in my preaching to present everyone mature in Christ. So Christ-like spiritual maturity is promoted through faithful preaching last week. But here in chapter 2, verse 2, we also see that Christ-like spiritual maturity is pursued in loving community. 
Christ-like spiritual maturity is pursued in loving community. Or to put it another way, maturity grows out of unity. Maturity grows out of unity. It was to the Colossians as a church body, not as individual Christians that Paul wrote. Sometimes he wrote to individual Christians, but for the most part, he's writing to churches made up of Christians. And it was for them as a church that Paul struggled and Paul prayed and for them as a whole that Paul was preaching and for their good as a whole that Paul was sending out these ministry assistants. See, he saw them as a unit, a a body, a family, a church. He saw them as a unit, and then here's how Paul's goal played out. He's struggling for them in those individual places, in those individual churches, that we could have said, we could have said your, uh, he just talked about those who hadn't seen him face to face, and so one close and two distant, so he says their hearts, but it's not like not for the Colossians. So don't read verse two and be like, this is his goal for other people and not the Colossians. So it's, this is an inclusive aspect of it. He wanted their hearts to be encouraged. This is his struggle. This is the, the, the goal that he wants to have happen. He wanted their hearts to be encouraged. Biblically, a person's heart does not represent merely their emotions as we sometimes think about. It's like we both, we both uh, miss that and get that a little bit in our, our culture. But we think heart, we think emotions. Interestingly, they, they thought of guts as emotions. You feel it down in your guts. Um, funny. No, never mind. <laughs> Too far off. Uh, in Scripture, back to the notes. In Scripture, heart designates the center of the personality the source of willing and thinking in addition to feeling. Not just feeling, but feeling and thinking and willing, the center of personality. Your desires, your affections, to use like a Jonathan Edwards type term, right? Paul doesn't just want them to feel better. I want your hearts to be encouraged. It's like, I don't want you to be sad. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't just want them to feel better. He wants them strengthened in their spirit, their inner being, their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength. He he wants them to have courage, encouraged. He wants them to have courage to continue, and he wants them to have have cheer instilled deeply inside of them. That's what it means for their hearts to be encouraged. Their hearts, right, not just how they feel, but who they are. And the source out of which everything flows, he wants that to be encouraged. Sometimes we find this word encouraged uh, as comforted instead, maybe in this passage or in other passages. It's actually a very common word that you find throughout the New Testament. So sometimes it's encouraged, sometimes it's comforted, other times it gets stronger, it becomes exhorted, becomes exhortation. And those are very different ideas between comfort and encouragement and exhortation. But there, but... uh, and every time a word is used, it doesn't mean everything. That's a fallacy. Uh, but these ideas definitely overlap, even though they're not the same. In 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks often of this encouragement or this comfort. 
It's not just for the Colossians that, that he wants this, not just for the Laodiceans, not just for any of those who'd seen him face to face. Everybody, he wanted this goal to be the case. And in chapter 1, verse 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, comfort is needed for those in affliction, suffering, trouble, not just emotional, uh, but emotional physical distress, those who are afflicted are in need of comfort, and God comforts those in affliction. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, comfort is needed for the downcast. So maybe if we keep affliction or suffering in terms of things that are happening physically, perhaps because we're followers of Christ, perhaps, perhaps because we are just living in a fallen world, there's also when we are downcast. Why so downcast? Oh, my soul, why disquieted, troubled within me? Well, the answer to those things is this same comfort or encouragement. Comfort for the afflicted, comfort for the downcast. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, this, this comfort that comes from God, that, that comes from Paul, also is a responsibility that the whole body shares. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, aim for restoration, Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. Comfort and encouragement in hard times can be accomplished by personal visits and by fellowship. We know this. We know what that's like. A text, even, like baseline communication. A text or a phone call or a personal note, especially an in-person visit, can lift our spirits from discouragement. I spend too much time by myself, bad. You might get a text from a good friend. Maybe that text involves disc golf. It's a really good thing. It might be just a, a drop-in by somebody working in my office. Where is he? Where's Glenn? I'm looking at everybody, seeing nobody. Glenn's out there, right? Glenn might just come in to my office, working on the next office. How are you, right? Just lift it up. It's too, too down, too sad. to be like, well, then let's go to lunch, right? Might get a, a voice message recorded from, from Keith, a uh, number of other things, different ways that you guys have, have served and encouraged me, right? Lifting our souls from discouragement. Paul, who had been thinking about them, struggling for them, he wanted their hearts to be encouraged, so he wrote them this letter, that their hearts may be encouraged. And he sent a ministry team to deliver it, right? Not just a postal worker, <laughs> hand-delivered. Biblical encouragement, true encouragement, real comfort does not come from just a text or a phone call, or a note, or a personal visit, even from a pastor. That's not where biblical encouragement comes from. It does not actually come from any mere human being. God is the God of comfort and encouragement. That's 2 Corinthians 1 again. God of comfort, the God of encouragement. And for God to be the God of comfort, for God to be the God of encouragement, means he is the God who gives comfort. He is the God who gives encouragement. And I think knowing that this helps us have a better definition of comfort or encouragement, that it, it comes from God or it really doesn't come at all. I want your heart to be encouraged. Okay, comfort, encouragement, exhortation. Right? There's like this, there's a spectrum there. I see everything in spectrums. I talk about that all the time. I want your heart to be encouraged is not the stereotypical dad response to hurt or discouragement of Quit whining and suck it up. Whatever doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. 
which isn't true. Sometimes it could kill you, uh, eventually, or maim you. There's, there are other options. Uh, but you know, if we just think all comfort, all encouragement, it's all exhortation, it's just like, hey, stop that. Like, okay. Uh. Okay, biblical comfort and encouragement uh, is also not the stereotypical mom response to hurt or discouragement. Oh, honey, that's terrible. They're there, whatever that means. Let me give you a kiss and a Band-Aid and a cookie to make it all better. But give me kisses and cookies and Band-Aids. Uh, it does make it better sometimes. But there's something more to this, right? Get over the problem. Thanks, not really helpful. Let's just cover the problem with love, okay? But, but what about the problem? Like, we find something in the middle. Uh, and it's not even just in the middle. I think it's something that's above. Like, biblical encouragement that comes from God is not just get over it, and it's not let's, let's just try to forget about it, but it's actually the promise of an ultimate eschatological, end times, ultimate forever reality that salvation is coming, right? Deliverance. God in his grace and mercy turns the desolation and suffering of his people into perfect consolation. Desolation into consolation. Discomfort into comfort. Discouragement into encouragement. Not just by covering it over, not just by telling us to snap out of it, but it's like when a friend visits us in our suffering, we feel better. When God visits us in our suffering, we are better. For in his faithfulness, he is making us better. Make yourself better. I'll make it all better. No, God is at work, right, to really make it better. I'll cover it. I'll criticize it. No, God I am saving you through this and out of this. That's biblical comfort and encourage. Comfort, comfort my people. I tells Isaiah to do this, right? Their cities are going to be destroyed. Judgment's going to come, but that's not the end. I'm actually going to take this ruined mess of sinfulness through judgment, and I'm going to bring it to promise, and I'm going to bring those promises to fulfillment. That's the encouragement that God gives. We, we want to settle for something else. But the encouragement that God gives is the promise of salvation through Christ for his people and not just right now forgiveness of sins, right? Because this is not all of salvation that we have to enjoy. So you can be encouraged in suffering or in affliction, being downcast, despairing, dis uh, depressed, discouraged in your soul. It's like because God is doing something like, and he's going to bring you through it and out of it, maybe not quickly. The comfort or encouragement that Paul sent to the hearts of the Colossians was encouragement from God according to his word, sent through human mediators. And this is a role that we have with each other because God actually, according to that 2 Corinthians 1, it's another passage just worth preaching, looking at, 2 Corinthians 1, read it this afternoon. God, the God of comfort, comforts us as we are comforting others. It's mediated comfort. It's mediated encouragement. Do you, know, you know what I mean by mediated, right? Someone is standing between God and us. It doesn't mean that you're distant from God. It means that God sends his comfort to his people through his people. 
And so if God's encouragement, if God's comfort comes in the promises that he has in his word, then when we bring comfort and encouragement to each other, which we're supposed to do, God's comfort through, us, through his word, through us, to each other. That's God comforting us. That's God encouraging us. So we have that role with each other to share and proclaim God's word and God's promise and God's gospel, calling each other to remember the full salvation that is ours in Christ. Not just suck it up and not just there, there, but take heart because of God's work through Christ. Encouragement is so tied to hope in this way. Not, not maybe things will get better, not even just eventually things will get better, but, but looking with eyes of faith, there's a certainty of hope. Things are actually in the process of getting better. And you look at our life, it's like, no, it's not. Kind of like, that's why it takes eyes of faith, because God says it is. I don't feel better. Circumstances are there. Yes, but through this, God is at work, so the encouragement of that final salvation is in effect. It's an inevitability. Like both in this, some of these passages, it's just fascinating to think. It's like when you step onto, I don't know, step onto a train and you're heading somewhere. It's like the destination is a, is a certainty in that because God is making it a certainty. So hope is not just that wish. Oh, it'd be great if things got better. I'd like to think that it will. And not just a, like, all right, well, I know eventually things will get better, but, it, but it's believing, trusting God's promises to say, you know what, even in this hell on earth, God is actually working to bring me to what is better. I trust his promises. Take heart because of God's work through Christ. This encouragement did not come to the Colossians, Laodiceans, Hierapolisians, Hierapolians, people in Hierapolis, did not come to them individually in isolation. It wasn't just you, 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 you. Instead, it took place as they were knit together with one another in love. This is yet another thing that Paul struggled to have take place in their lives. I, I want, I struggle that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. I'm not sure if you've recognized this or not, but unity among Christ's body is a huge theme in Paul's writings and throughout the New Testament. Huge. In quick succession, I could point out probably two dozen passages, a quick reading, in which Paul emphasizes the importance of the unity in the church in his writings. Philippians 1.27 jumps out. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He wrote this around the same time that he would have written Colossians. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And is this not, is this passion of Paul's as he writes, and again, I just, I could walk you through a whole bunch of them. Is not this passion of Paul's a fulfillment of, of our Lord Jesus Christ's prayer in John 17, where our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, prayed to his Father, saying, I do not ask just for these only, the, the 11 at that point, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. 
unified, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity among his people is a passion of Christ's and a passion of the apostles. Is it a passion of ours? And this is the Christian unity, which is the soil necessary for Christian maturity. Maturity grows out of unity. So that's the, that's the image. That's the picture, right? The soil out of which the, the flowers and fruit of Christian maturity, blamelessness, holiness, above reproachedness, right? Walking worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That grows out of the soil of Christian unity in a church, starting with primarily with our fellow believers, our brothers and local sisters in our local church. So again, here at Risen King Church, we must be knit together in love for Christ, love for each other, if we are to grow in Christ-like maturity. Maturity grows out of unity. So if we are disunified, whatever we're growing in, it isn't actually Christ-like spiritual maturity. And we can grow in a whole bunch of other stuff and make advancement in things that isn't maturity because maturity grows out of unity. It doesn't happen if our hearts are not knit together in love. Have you ever thought about how character, virtues, and vices, those things are only revealed, character is only revealed when it's tested? I have uh, have long endurance in this, in running. Let's go run a long time. I can't do that. (laughs) You revealed your lack of endurance. You don't know if you're patient until you are confronted with something that tests your patience, right? You can say, I'm a father who loves spending time with his children. And then you could drive 7,000 miles in a van and then you find out uh, and and I, I think we will. I'm excited about Where are my kids? I'm excited about this, right? But, but we'll find out. Is daddy patient? Is daddy not patient? They already know the answer. It's not, right? Laziness or diligence are revealed when a task is put before you. I'm lazy. I'm diligent. Well, we don't know. But when a task is there, how do you approach that? That reveals laziness or that reveals diligence. It's not really Christ-like love for you to reach out to and serve someone that you get along with. That could just be liking. <laughs> I like you, so we get, we get along, so I'll serve you. We're like, well, that's good, but that's not Christ-like love. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Like, what is godly Christ-like love? Not for those that are already with us, but for those who are against us. Love your enemies. He even asked, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Right? Give you a generous gift? You give me a generous gift? Be like, oh, look what, how generous we are. No? <laughs> right? Invite you out to dinner? You invite me out to dinner? This is great. Unity, love. Like, no. <laughs> like, if you knew that was going to happen, that's just not what this looks like. He calls us to love our enemies. And I think related to this are the words, 1 John Chapter 4, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, his sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. So what does love look like? Right? Well, we know, not when we're confronted with those people that we get along with, we don't learn love among friendship. 
right? We learn love among disagreement, and the same thing is said about unity. When we are knit together in love with those that we already get along with or fully agree with, that is not the pursuit of Christian unity. Right? That's just personal friendship and agreement. That's not hard work. That's not anything to pursue. When Jews or Gentiles would, would have worshipped together at the same church in the first century, that ethnic divide provided an opportunity for a bridge of Christian unity. You guys are profoundly different and have deep disagreements with each other. And so Paul says, perfect, because now we have a subject over which, a divide over which we can have a bridge of being knit together in love, Christian unity, right? Jew and Gentile. Uh, talking, with, talking with Keith in, in Uganda, all sorts of tribes, brother said, so it's really obvious, tribes that didn't like other tribes, trying to gather together in one church. It's like, well, we don't have tribes. Right? We're just all here in, in the valley. We don't, we don't have any disagreements here. We need to pursue unity with those we disagree, and I would say it isn't, again, this is the point, it is not unity if we already agree. We have to find, identify, call out the points of disagreement over which we can build bridges for unity. Not dissolve them. They just, they stay. They're stark. Elephants in the room, in other words, they would call them out, and now that person, that elephant, there's a cause for love. There's a cause for unity. When unity is opposed, that's when we have to pursue it. Perhaps some caveats are coming to your mind. Oh, we cannot sacrifice truth in the name of unity. How true that is. I mean, the goal is not merely unity for unity's sake. That's what our world calls for, right? Just let's just all get along and agree. And it's like, well, there's like 10,000 reasons why we don't get along and agree, right? So it's not just unity for unity's sake. But Christ-honoring unity that produces church-wide Christ-like maturity. We want unity because we want maturity to grow out of it. So if we just chuck truth, well, then it's not Christ-like unity, right? So the ditch on one side is unity at the expense of truth. That's one ditch. It's a danger I think we probably see really clearly. But the ditch on the other side is truth at the expense of unity. Unity at the expense of truth is one ditch, danger that we could fall into. And truth at the expense of unity is the ditch on the other side. And I think I tip this way. Truth at the expense of unity. And this is a real danger. That would be the goal of truth for truth's sake. Unity for unity's sake. And we're like, no. But there's also just truth for truth's sake, to which we also must say, no. I want truth. Why? Because I want a reputation for intelligence, theological acumen, rightness, to where you all know that I'm right. An insistence on that being right without any concern for people. And when I am most concerned about pursuing unity with those who agree with me, I am sacrificing unity in the name of truth. I want you to hear that really clearly. 
The obsession is when, you, when I want to find the people who agree, here it is, with me. You must agree with me for us to have unity. Do you see the flaw in that? Do you see how that's a problem? Who am I? What right do I have to demand agreement with me? How can that be the basis of unity? Is it, is it Peter Ambler Church? No. Heavens, no. That ever happened? If you ever pull in and the sign says Peter Ambler Church instead of Risen King Church, just don't come. Or just kick me out. You, got, you guys come. Cover that, rip it down, and then find somebody else. Agreeing with me. If that's my obsession, I'm sacrificing unity in the name of truth. But instead of making myself the reference point, I must lovingly pursue Christ and will then find unity with those who also lovingly pursue Christ. Christ is our unity, right? It's, it's do I agree with God's word, right? And so as I continually reference that, this is God's word, this is the truth, not what I think is right, what God says, Right? I return to that, and you are joined with that, then Christ as a central reference point provides a ground of unity for us. I must prioritize the importance of my doctrinal passions and not let my personal opinions hinder the pursuit of unity in our body. I'm saying that to myself. I must prioritize the importance of my doctrinal passions and not let my personal opinions hinder the pursuit of unity in our body. So I'm a Calvinist. That's not a surprise to anybody. We talked about that, right? Total depravity is the state of humanity. Uh, unconditional election is God's grace and eternity past, choosing those who would come to him. Christ died on the cross only to pay for the sins of his elect, right? It was a perfect, actual substitute for them. God and his Holy Spirit irresistibly or effectually draws those. They hear the gospel. It's his sovereign work. I don't choose him until after he's already chosen and drawn me to himself. And then those who have come to Christ through that will persevere in their salvation. Taught whole long lessons and sermons on these type of things, right? So if that's new for you, probably just haven't been here very long. And those are important things. But do you have to agree with me on election in order to be a Christian? And my answer to that would be no. Oh, so, so the truth of what the gospel is, that doesn't matter? No, it matters. It matters a lot. Matter of fact, it kind of defines a, a theological unity that we have here as a church. But does that mean that every other church that does not do that, they are no longer a Christian church? That only Calvinists will go to heaven? No. Right? You must believe a certain understanding of a passage in order for you to go to heaven? No, that, there's a problem with that. So we talk about a prioritization of doctrines. Or tiers, first tier, second tier, third tier, right? Uh, Jesus is God, right? Is, is more important than Jesus died only for the elect in the way that I understand that. Right? Mode of baptism, not as important as Trinity. So I need to be able to prioritize my doctrine because I can't just be like, oh, I'm just unified with uh, the Latter-day Saint Church because they also believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's like, no, we mean something different. That's first tier. We cannot be unified with that. Let 
So I must prioritize the importance of my doctrinal passions and not let my personal opinions hinder the pursuit of unity in our body. And this can also look like judging or condemning those who disagree with me. And we get that. And we can toss things. Let's imagine this is an aisle and there's two sides to our church, right? We can we just be like, oh, look at them judging me. I know that they're judging me. I know it. Now, here's what our flesh does. This is actually what I'm more concerned about. I'm more concerned that as I look, I'm sitting here, right? This is our family side. We don't sit with you. Uh, this, is, this is my family side. And so I'm just looking over at you and be like, oh, based off that behavior, I know that they're judging me. So then what does my sinful heart do? I assume that someone who disagrees with me is judging me so that I judge them for their judging of me. And if that was confusing to you, I get it. I'm not going to judge you for that. Right? But if I look, look at Keith who disagrees with me on something. Right? There's an opportunity for Christian unity. It's okay for me to call you out, brother. I don't know of anything we really, a couple things we might disagree on, but we're good. Good brothers. We're, we're good right now. But look at Keith. I'm like, oh, Keith disagrees with me about something. Okay? Ground for Christian unity. But then I look at Keith and just kind of like, oh, wow. Well, he, wh- I bet he is condemning me in his heart for the fact that I don't agree with him on this matter. That brother, look at him. He is not pursuing unity. So you know what I need to do? I'm going to back off. Right? I don't think his side of the bridge is open, so I'm shutting down mine. And so I've judged for judging. Insidious. Sinful. The lack of unity hindering maturity in Christ's body. May Christ give us clarity to see these things. This is the first of many conversations that we need to have about these matters. And I'm going to be gone for five weeks. <laughs> More to come. Paul goes on. I'm going to go on too. Once their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love to reach. So he wanted them, he struggled for them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. We already talked about God's mystery being Christ back in verse 27. We'll talk about that a little bit more, Lord willing, in future chapters. But this is what grows out of this. Their hearts together being encouraged, all of them, their hearts being knit together, love for Christ, love for each other, so they could reach the riches, not a little bit, riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So without encouraged and knit together hearts, without that, we will not reach Christ-like maturity. Without this, Without the first part of verse 2 and the second part of verse 2, we are not reaching, we're not attaining to, we're not being able to come into contact with the riches that we have. We're actually limiting ourselves from being able to come to the riches of full assurance of what God has for us. Knowledge of him, knowledge of his plan for us, knowledge of his, his mystery revealed in Christ. If we are encouraged by God's word, we are knit together in love, then we will reach or attain the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Together, not apart, we will make progress in Christ-like unity. You, me, cannot make progress in Christian maturity outside of unity with God's body. That, I think, is the heartbeat that Paul is saying. And so he's struggling for that. Why talk about unity so much? Unity and maturity, both goals. What's the relationship? Maturity grows out of unity. 
Right? Some of you, many of you are in, in the Ask the Classical Conversations program, right, throughout Challenge, and you're talking to each other. What is the point of that type of model? It's because if you only see your point of view about something, you are missing out on learning. I can, be, I can see my own personality, my own oddities, my own history, my own interpretations, like, okay, I understand this passage. Then Robbie can come alongside of me and look at the same passage, and he's done this, why Call, not calling Robbie out, but he's just looking at it differently. And all of a sudden, if I step over in unity with Robbie, and I'm like, oh, wow, that truth is so much bigger than I only saw because I had these blinders on. And so Robbie, a good brother, can come alongside with that. And Alice, a good sister, come alongside of me at different times, be like, I'm, I'm here and I'm convinced. And then Alice is like, did you think about it this way? No. Like, what a gift to be admonished and encouraged by a brother and a sister to be like, look, there's more than just my own perspective on these type of things. And so I've owned the rich assurance of that. That's two similar perspectives. I don't want one perspective on God's truth. I don't want to know God a little bit my own way. I don't want, to, I don't want just a few little bit of pushing out. I, I want the whole circle. And so here's what's happened. This is our body is that circle. Like you contribute to that. This is what we're called to. This is how maturity and knowing who God is draws out from other people that we're in interaction with. Like, so you need Christ's body to know Christ. Young and old, male and female, well-read, not as well-read, like we need each other. There's Christ in you, the hope of glory. And if we could look at it from all those different perspectives, Christ, then, then maturity will grow out for me and for you and for all of us. Do you want the same unity that Christ wants, that Paul wanted, Paul prayed for, Paul struggled for? I want that maturity. I, I don't want to be immature. I don't want to be in the danger. Remember last week, right? If I sit into neutral, right? I need warning and admonishment because otherwise I'm going to drift away from truth. And the body of Christ is needed for you to pursue Christian maturity. You will not be like Christ by yourself. You will not. And you can, but we can reach the full riches of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. We can know Christ as we pursue unity with those with whom we disagree in this body. So, as members of Risen King Church, individual Christians who are joined together as one body, do we pursue encouragement from God and from his word? Snap out of it. Have a cookie. God is saving us, right? What's our encouragement and comfort look like? Do we share this Christ-centered encouragement and comfort with others? Is it your source for yourself? And then as you are comforted by God and his word, are you sharing that comfort and encouragement with each other? Or is your response to other people who are suffering, snap out of it, or they're there, right? There's a place for aspects of that, but God and his word and Christ, are we knit together in love as one body here at Risen King Church, or are we divided into factions? And are we willing, are we willing to struggle putting in the hard, humbling work of pursuing Christian unity with one another so that together we can reach all the riches of most assuredly knowing Christ. Are you willing to put in hard work for that?
Are you willing to, to struggle in prayer for one another and for yourself? The Lord's table is a pursuit of that unity as one body. We receive the elements, the bread and the cup. We receive these things together during our gatherings because this sacrament is not given to us individually. I'd go so far as to say it's like if in your morning devotion times, you sing, read, pray, and partake of the Lord's Supper, I would say you're not acting properly. It's not what it's for. It is a means of God's sanctifying grace to us in Christ to be received together as part of our corporate worship. The Corinthian believers had forgotten this entirely, and they were guilty of abusing the Lord's table. The Corinthians came together for a meal that incorporated the Lord's Supper, but they did not share. They had a potluck, and there was a rich kid's table, rich adult's table, like a junior high or high school cafeteria. Uh, They had the rich people table and they had the poor people table. And the potluck didn't have just one table where everybody got to go through. The rich people kept their rich food to themselves and allowed the poor people to just eat whatever the poor people had brought, which they're poor. So it was nothing. They sat divided. The rich hoarded their food supplies, keeping them from the poor. They took their fill of the bread And they got drunk on the wine, all the while not sharing with the poor and hungry among them. And in doing so, Paul said that by doing this, the rich, who were excluding aspects of it, they despised the church of God, humiliated those who had nothing. The next verse is where we come for the table every single first and third Sunday. The very next verse, you have humiliated, despised those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Did you know that that was the context of this passage? I mean, we just jump right in on verse 23, and we have a, I always have a really nice tone. (laughs) Paul's tone's a little different. Because he's addressing something here. And that's following this chastisement, he presents the truth of the Lord's Supper. And then the passage goes along the same lines. Verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty considering the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup after examining. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Growing up, this morning was red like every time we came to the table. And so I, it was all I considered. So I'm sitting there in the pew or the chair or whatever, coming to the table, I mean, maybe it was like monthly, desperately seeking to confess my sins so I wouldn't get sick and die. What are my sins? Did I lust this week? Yes. Oh, Jesus, forgive me for lust. Did I steal? Forgive me for stealing. Just go through all of them. I said a lot, forgive, 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 forgive. I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. Am I okay? Am I okay? No, it's wrong-headed thinking. It was hoping to make myself worthy of Christ and his body and his blood. Have I cleaned myself up enough to be worthy of coming to Jesus? Oh, I hope you don't ask yourself that question. If you do, I've got a really good answer for you. You know what the answer is? If you ask, have I cleaned myself up enough to come to Jesus this week? You know what the answer is? Nope. 
Oh, if you say yes and glue your butt to that pew, I guess you're in trouble. You don't, you don't get the gospel. Oh, I'm good enough this week. No, no, you weren't. That's the only question that I asked myself. That's not looking at Christ. That's looking at me. But even though that's like a horrible anti-gospel way of thinking about the table, it actually has not, I think, very little, if anything, to do with this passage. Paul is not confronting them about individual-based sins. Did I lust? Did I steal? Did I lie? From the context, Paul is talking about body-related sins, failing to discern that we are part of Christ's body. Failing to discern the body is like, oh, I thought this bread was something else. No, it's not. Failing to discern the body is kind of like looking around and be like, look, I'm part of something. Am I pursuing unity with these people that are also coming to the table with me? That's discerning the body of Christ in the table, that we are coming together for these type of things. Oh, uh, Peter, you're way off on this. Well, let's conclude Paul's section as he says with this instruction. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, to eat, wait for one another. If you're hungry, eat at home. <laughs> Don't get judged by these type of things. So before the passage on the table and after the passage on the table, Paul is talking about body relationships, church relationships. So when you come to the table, it's not just, am I a guilty sinner? Yes, you are. It's what have, I, what have I done to pursue unity among the body? This table isn't about me or about you as individuals. It's about us as members together of Christ's body purchased by his death on the cross. So as we come to the table today, don't keep your eyes closed and your heads down. Don't think of this as an act of private worship. It is an act of public worship. <clears throat> Be encouraged in your hearts that Christ has died to redeem each one who comes in front of you or behind you in the line. Get your eyes up. Look, you're already staring at each other at this weird 90, de or 90 degree angle, whatever the angle is. Right? We already have learned not to make eye contact with the people that were staring. Do you guys remember when we first moved in here? It's kind of like, boy, they're close. And it's like, don't look, don't look across the aisle. Look across the aisle. Consider each person that comes. Maybe you can give thanks to God for them by name. Whoever's in front of you. Jesus, thank you that this body and blood was not broken and poured out just for me, but also for. And maybe center your thoughts on the person that you recognize that there's a, a ditch formed between you. May our Lord Jesus Christ cause us to be knit together in love at his table, his table, so that together we may reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. That mystery is Christ, Christ in all of you, the hope of glory. Father, as we come to the table of your son, we need your spirit to work in us. May your, may your grace do you convict me of how right I think I am and deliver me from judgment or condemnation of my brothers and sisters that Christ has died for. Please lift our eyes up to you and we may encourage each other in our hearts being knit together in love and know you better as a body as you have ordained. May this table serve in that way that Christ will be glorified. Amen. <clears throat>
uh, I need my water bottle. Uh, deacons will dismiss, row by row, will come, will receive the elements, will return, and then we'll partake of them. What's the word? Not going to do that.